Hello, hello. It's been so long. I have taken some time off Meathead Hippie Podcast. If you guys saw my Instagram stories, which, you know, they're so short-lived. So if you didn't, that's cool. I just took a little time because one, it's summer and I felt like there's so many uh, people that just, you know, not kind of on their typical commute or maybe things are different with vacation. And it felt like a perfect time to take a little time off, but really the <laughs> You know, let's get honest. I think the biggest thing was the fact that I was a little uninspired by things. And that's a good sign to say, I need to take some time. And anytime you have those moments of, I don't feel inspired to go to the gym consistently, or I don't feel inspired to create things. I think you have to really listen to that. That's something that I never am good at forcing things. I know you guys appreciate that about me, but sometimes it's so frustrating. Sometimes I'm like, God, just rally and do it. And a lot of times I do rally and do it. But if you're listening to my podcast, you know that the more we rally and do it just because we should, the less we're in alignment with ourselves. So I'm so stoked. I'm Emily Schramm, nutritional therapy practitioner, uh, coach, health and wellness entrepreneur, just helping you guys empower uh, yourself, empowering you to empower yourself. And we are back with another episode of Meathead Hippie. And I just, you know, put it out there like, I want good guests. The reason I started this podcast was because I went from completely in person training clients to 98% online and I missed good conversation. And so if I'm going to continue to do this podcast, we are at a, episode 105, which is 105 plus hours of incredible guests and topics and conversations. If I'm going to continue to do it, it has to be things that are like, holy shit. And today we have some holy shit. <laughs> so I will tell you the whole story in the podcast of how I found Lisa. But Lisa Wimberger at 15 got struck by lightning. And it, you know, without knowing what that meant, 15 years later, went down a path that she is now currently on. She is the founder of the Neurosculpting Institute, which happens to be 10 minutes away from my house. What the hell? It's incredible. She holds a master's degree in education, a foundation, a foundation certificate, a foundation certification in neuroleadership and certificates in medical neuroscience, visual perception in the brain and neurobiology. She is also an author, which we get to talk about for, it's just so cool. I just kept unpeeling things. I'm like, oh my gosh, it, of a kid's book, but also new beliefs, new brain, free yourself from stress and fear and neurosculpting a whole brain approach to heal trauma, rewrite limiting beliefs and find wholeness. So this is all about your brain, the vagus nerve, vagal tone, our body in itself outside of disassociating it. Uh, really this relationship we have, I mean, we talk about everything from social media to why all these like crazy YouTubes are popping up of people making very strange sounds like, and it being like the whole new thing, the whole new rage. Um, and just, it's just, it was such a good conversation and I just felt so right at home in her facility. Please go check her out at neurosculptinginstitute.com newsletter, workshops, online stuff, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to love this. So, so happy I'm back. Quick little update on my stuff before we jump into the podcast and to the interview. Uh, you know, honestly, so many good things are happening and I just had to be patient. I just went home to, I went to Boston to Bradford's home and then my home in Missouri had some great, amazing time. And really I'm just kind of getting things in play. I mean, timing is 
you know, entertaining at times. It's frustrating, but it's like, you're so ready for something. And then universe is like, eh, not yet. So that's how everything is right now. So emilystrom.com is getting a makeover. We're going to launch part three of the body awareness project, digestion and gut, which is how I found Lisa. And we have uh, just so many amazing projects, including the new supplement line. So if you are new to some of the stuff, or if you have maybe not heard an update from me, just go check out my Instagram at Emily Schramm. I just did, I'm doing Instagram TVs, which I'm so proud of myself for doing because I have all these videos and uh, just, I don't feel like I put them in the right place. So it means so much when you guys comment and share and tell me what you think. I want to keep doing this forever and I plan on it. So let me know what you want to hear and let me know how it's been helpful or what I can do to be more helpful. As always, you guys are amazing to all my meathead hippies sending all the love. We are back on schedule with incredible interviews until the next break is needed. So thanks for being here and sticking with me and uh, enjoy this wonderful podcast back with Lisa Wimberger. (laughs) I'm Emily Schramm, the ultimate meathead hippie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Lisa Wimberger. Hi. <laughs> this is so fun. I was just telling you how I took some time off podcasting and how much I was desperate for good conversation. And I feel like I put that in the universe and I literally, people listening, I am in a tree house right now. This it's, is incredible. It's so beautiful here. I love it. Yeah. This is your place. This is your institute that you created from the ground up, um, the Neurosculpting Institute. The rabbit holes I think will go down are plenty and I just can't wait. And it is so fun. I mean, I really, I'll make sure I take pictures for you guys to see this because this is just all sorts of Zen. And you're right here in Denver. Right here in the middle of Denver, a Zen oasis in the middle of Denver. That's so cool. And I just feel just how I I was telling you how I found out about you, but just so that the audience knows, um, I'm filming for part three of the Body Awareness Project, which is digestion and gut, something that is like near and dear to my heart based on some of the head trauma I had growing up, directly connected to some of my gut issues, taking a lifetime, what it felt like a lifetime to figure out, and interviewing Jordan, one of the NTA instructors, the Nutritional Therapy Association, and she mentioned your work, and I just was like, wait, say it again? (laughs) Who is this? I have to meet this person. So it was just wonderful that you were actually in Denver of all places. So how cool. Yeah. And when you reached out, I didn't know you were in Denver. So I was like, oh, she's right here. Just down the street. Yeah. 10 minutes away. I know. It's great. (laughs) So thank you for talking because I think it's going to be some fun topics, whether it's stress, brain, how you got into it. But I think that's what, you know, my own curiosity is, is how you did get into this. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned you have a stack of books that I love, which I will definitely take a picture of as well. But the polyvagal theory book, was that kind of the start of this? Uh, it definitely helped save my life for sure. Um, the start of it was, and similar to you, where you had a life of like trying to figure out what's going on in your body that led you to your mission. Mm-hmm. Same for me. I was having uh, grand mal seizures since I was 15. Um, After a traumatic lightning strike on my birthday, it was all so cosmic. It was ridiculous. Are you kidding me? I just got chills. (laughs) I say it. I have to laugh because I'm thinking this is not my life, but it is. Yes. So on your 15th birthday? On my 15th birthday, I was was hit. the The side of the house that we were leaning against, a bunch of friends, Leaning against the side of the house, I had the metal garage door handle touching my spine. 
and the boy sitting standing next to me was shoulder to shoulder. Side of the house got hit. It came out through us. So we just were thrown like three feet off the house. It mostly went through me. And I started having seizures that summer. And of course, you know, a pack of 15-year-olds coming home saying, Mommy, Mommy, you know, Lisa got hit by lightning. No one believed us. I didn't believe it. I was I was definitely freaked out. But I thought, well, this really didn't happen because I'm Cause conscious. What? I'm fine. Yeah. Um, did you remember, like, the point of impact? I did. Just, I did. Wow. I remembered everything. And so did he. He was, it must have gone through him, too, because he was oh next my. to me. Um, and I started having seizures that summer. And the seizures just got worse and worse over the years. And I never had a diagnosis. I would hide them. Like, I would pray that they would come when I was by myself. They often did. Some people witnessed them. They were very just something I didn't want to talk about. And But by the time I got to my early 30s, they were getting out of control. And I had one in a doctor's office during, <laughs> during a gynecological exam. Oh, my. Oh there my I God. am with, like, this completely vulnerable position. And I just get done with my gyno exam, and I tell the doctor I feel funny. And he says, just lay back. And next thing I know, I'm I'm waking up to a needle of atropine, like pulp fiction scene in a movie. And I'm I can't speak, I can't move. And he's shaking. And he told me, You had a grandma seizure and you flatlined. And I'm clueless. And he asked, you know, does this has this ever happened before? And I said, Well, I've been doing this thing. I think I'm passing out. I've been doing this my whole life. He said, no, you're having grand mal seizures. So I've, I've ended up in the ER a bunch of times for this. But he gave me my diagnosis, which was, first, let's figure out if you're epileptic. And the answer was no. And let's figure out what this is. And he tells me, oh, you're vasovagal. Mm-hmm. To such an extreme degree that you're going into bradycardia, your heart's stopping, and you're having seizures. I don't understand any of these words at the time, but I was so happy that someone knew what this was, which then leads me to, of course, Stephen Porges, the polyvagal theory, Steve, uh, uh, Peter Levine, waking the tiger, mm-hmm. all of these somatic clues to make sense of all these things. And then I, I thought, well, I need to understand my cranial nerves now. Yeah. So that's where I went down the path of neuroscience, which was purely self-serving. I did not have an idea that I was going to do anything with it other than stop my seizures. So I studied neuroscience. I got a bunch of certificates. I never got a degree in any of it. Just a bunch of this class will help me. This class will help me. This this is piquing my interest. This is is giving me clues as to who I am and what my body's doing. And, um, And as the seizures got worse really bad the last year I had them they were the worst I couldn't really recalibrate myself um I started playing with a way to deconstruct meditation and put sequencing to it that neuroscience was giving me clues about Mm. which would make my nervous system far more receptive to new patterns and all I knew was I need a new pattern response to stress because this one's going to kill me um so I used these five steps I was coming up with as a sandbox for me to play in and try in meditation to rehearse 
a different response to that seizure onset. I had no idea if it would work, but I was pretty much back against the wall. So I rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed a fighting, kicking, screaming kind of response instead of a seizing response. And then the last seizure wave hit like eight months after I had been rehearsing this, the the seizure halo came and I thought I was going to go. And all of a sudden this script I had been rehearsing just automatically kicked in and I started kicking, screaming, punching and not seizing. And this, I, I can't even tell you how much energy was in my body that in the past I was shutting down around. This just exploded out of me. I was definitely not graceful. I was ugly. I was a banshee. But the whole time I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm not having a seizure. This is amazing. Yeah. I never had another seizure again. I've had halos and they just dissolve. Oh. And and that's when I said, those five steps that I've been playing with, they just, they saved my life, literally. And I made a decision at that point. I don't know what it's supposed to look like. I'm quitting my job. What were you doing? I was a project manager at a consulting firm. I was an instructional designer, project manager. And um, in the past, I was a teacher. And I thought, no, I can't. I just got a second chance. I can't not commit myself to this. So I quit my job and had zero clue (laughs) what that was going to be or what it was going to look like. I just knew I had all this information. Someone else might need it. Someone else might be having these experiences. Someone else might be overwrought with trauma in their body. And I have a steam valve. I just figured it out. And that's what happened. And that was, you know, that was 2000. When did I? Hmm, probably 2006, seven. And now you have this incredible institute where you are constantly teaching people. Constantly, yeah. And so the people that come to you, are they themselves? I mean, you had to put together so many different pieces, right? And it was, I'm drawn to this. This is something I need to learn. And bringing it all in one place, I, you know, it's like you clearly created that. And I love that. So are people, you know, in these chairs, a lot of them, it's similar stories to you. Are they practitioners? Are they um, a it's a, mix? It's a mix across the board um, because, you know, in the beginning, I never, I am not the person who does the market research. I don't know branding. I don't, I don't know that stuff. I just know I'm going to talk to everybody about it. And that's good and bad. The mm-hmm. good is I have people from all walks of life. I have people in deep trauma. I have paraplegics and quadriplegics. I have self-help people. I have entrepreneurs who all will benefit from learning how to navigate their nervous system, right? Mm. That's the good side. The downside is, I don't know who my audience is. It's everybody. Well, that's a tall order. Mm. So I've had to really learn over the years um, how to speak to different groups of people based on what they need. Um, But it's really all walks of life that come here. And sometimes they find me through referral. Sometimes... um, they're interested in neuroplasticity, and, and we come up pretty high in Google rankings for neuroplasticity work and brain training. Sometimes it's for I'm, I'm hopeless and helpless, and I heard you help my friend with depression kind of thing. It's, it's all over. It's all over the place. And it, it's kind of what you said of like, I mean, how your story evolved. It's like the right people will find you. Yeah, that's always been my approach. Uh-huh. Um, 
my marketing director would like me to refine that a little bit, I have to say. I love it. Well, my business mind, as soon as I walked in, I'm like, I, I know, you know, how to put programs together and projects together, and but to create what you've created, it's a, it's incredible. So, I mean, it's just amazing. I think it's so cool. So I'm just excited to be able to share this with yeah. people. <laughs> so neuroplasticity, when you're looking at uh, creating new neurons, when you're looking at changing certain patterns and behavior, some sometimes meditation that definitely came up when you were talking about it. Um, what is like the best, like simple explanation for this, not just the teachings that you do, but for being able to take kind of that power back mm-hmm. and change it. Yeah. How do you start explaining Yeah, that? I start explaining it like this. Um, neuroplasticity is just a different word for learning. Mm-hmm. That's it. It just means our capacity to learn. If you break down what is learning, learning involves a couple things. Learning involves memory. You cannot learn without memory. So you have to do something And it has to become memorable enough for you to retain it so that you can reference it tomorrow and deepen it, right? So learning equals a capacity to remember. Um, A capacity to remember requires you to be able to focus. Mm. You don't remember the things you don't pay attention to, right? Mm -hmm. So neuroplasticity means it's it's really just um, a way for us to remind ourselves if we pay attention to what is happening in the moment, that moment becomes a learned experience that becomes part of our nervous system's understanding of the world. And then we take that understanding and we move into tomorrow with it. And so that's what neuroplasticity is. At a muscle memory level, so you know, you're in the fitness world, you know that you're gonna train a muscle through repetition over time right? Mm-hmm. That's neuroplasticity sort of in a mechanical way. Yeah. Then there's neuroplasticity at a neurological level, which is your brain cells have to talk to each other. How do they learn to speak to each other? What are they communicating and how do they learn to reference that over and over and over again to refine it? Mm. And that can be both positive and negative. <laughs> then there's neuroplasticity at a synaptic level, which is the space between the neurons. And that is how can the synapse learn to receive faster, better, more richly so that the message is amplified. Mm. And, and then there's social neuroplasticity. How do we learn to relate to each other? And then how does that become a cultural norm that we then take into tomorrow? So for me, neuroplasticity was introduced to me as a term through neuroscience, but I don't know that it's just a neuroscience term. Mm. Um, so really what we do here is we teach people how to learn better, how to unlearn everything they think they are victim to, how to unlearn everything they think that was handed down to them from generations and genealogy and epigenetics. Mm. And then how to learn whatever it is new that they want to orient towards. So that's kind of like the umbrella of what we do here. The timing of this interview is so good. I love it. So because this is something that's so, you know, the law of attraction. And we sometimes, sometimes we don't. Sometimes it takes some unlayering of figuring out, wow, that is my pattern. I, mm-hmm. I just, I didn't even know I responded like that, right? But when you find those patterns... Sometimes all you can think about are those patterns. Uh-huh. And it's like, 
okay, I'm thinking about it. Therefore, I'm putting more energy into it. Therefore, now I'm going to keep attracting that. Whether it's, the, I mean, the perfect example for people when you hear people say, I can't afford that or I don't have money or, you know, that's too expensive. You are attracting exactly that in your bank account, right? And so, you know, not to simplify the law of attraction, but like for somebody and your whole process goes through this, but is that the hardest piece for people? I would love to talk about the law of attraction for okay. a minute because yes. you just hit on a really important topic. Um, we notice our patterns, but a pattern's job is to preserve itself. It's only there because it was deemed helpful and efficient by your brain. Therefore, if you try to break it, an efficient, helpful structure, your pattern's going to try to preserve itself. So it's yeah. going to get stronger. Um, and, and so when you talk about the law of attraction, I'm going to give the perfect example. This story just still makes me laugh. <laughs> um, back before I was doing neurosculpting and I was in the corporate world and I was doing a lot of metaphysical work and energetic training, I thought, okay, I'm just going to tell the universe what I'm ready for, right? Yeah. I'm ready for a ton of money. That's what I do. Most of us say that. In yeah. Our, well, we want to manifest money. Yeah. Okay. So I said that. And like within. I said it today. Okay. Well, in, in like two weeks, um, my contract dried up and I had no job. And I'm sitting there for like stewing in my own pity going, this law of attraction stuff just totally let me down. And why? Maybe it's because I don't know how to do it. Maybe I'm not good enough for me. All the stories that come with it. But then I said, well, let me meditate. So I meditated on why. And what I remembered in my meditation was as a child, I said over and over again, when I'm rich, I'm never going to have to report to anybody else. And I'm never going to have to wake up to an alarm clock or be on anyone else's schedule. And so when I told the universe, I'm ready for more money, it answered my definition of money. Those three things. Those three things. It gave it to me within a week. And I went, okay, so how much is underneath that we don't know about? How do we break the patterns of what's underneath? That requires us to not get stuck trying to identify, but to simply have a process that goes underneath and allows us to unravel sometimes even that which is unnameable. Mm. And that's what neurosculpting was doing for me was it was helping me go to the mysterious aspect of my behaviors without having to psychoanalyze or understand or be an expert in those things, mm -hmm. but to go to them at that level and look at my body relates to this like this, my brain relates to my body relating to the thought, how do I interrupt that cycle and orient it differently? So this law of attraction thing is a slippery slope for people because a lot of us don't know what are what we're actually asking for and we get it wow. and we think we're looking for something else mm -hmm. and then we either speak badly about this what idea which is actually really happening all the time or we put ourselves in this position of we have to follow a guru because it's working for them mm. and they must know something i don't and a lot of them sometimes misuse that power and some of the amazing teachers I've had don't know how to backwards engineer how they got where they are. So they're trying to teach you to be where they are 
having no idea how to teach you to get there because they don't know how they got there. Some of them are gifted from birth. Some of them had epiphanies and they're just changed. And some of them haven't put words to, to the process. And a lot of us need the process. Mm. That, that's, yes. Oh my gosh. I have so, so, okay. Example of the money rewiring it. Is it just saying, okay, let me change the definition of I'm ready for a ton of money. It's a different, it's a bunch of different things and we've got all these choices. So this is beautiful. Okay. So one option, could I change the definition of money? Mm. Could I say money equals food in my refrigerator, mm-hmm. freedom, money equals an exhale at the end of a day that I've determined was over. Could we change the definition of money to abundance and then abundance to meaning a lot of different things? So we can do that. Mm. We can also go on a discovery in our body and say, where do I have a defense contraction response when I think about money? And we can start uncoupling that response. Now imagine doing both of those things, right? Uncoupling my attachment to contraction around money while changing the definition, that's going to go a lot faster. We're going to shift a lot faster. And then there's a million layers in between that you could play with. So with neurosculpting, the story you play with is unlimited. The process is the same every time, but the content of the story can go deeper and deeper and as tangential as you want because at some point it's a game of Jenga where that piece shifts a little bit and the whole structure changes. Mm. Um, so it's always fun for me to talk about where can you go with this? Because it's, it's anywhere. Mm-hmm. I anywhere. love it. It's so funny. I wrote this in the plane yesterday. Um, seeing what you lo- you dislike and knowing that, okay, this is a layer, this is a pattern, this is a behavior. And what ha- has helped me so much is understanding what you said earlier, it helped me survive. It served me at some point. It helped me get here. I can acknowledge it without this guilt and the shame of I am that way. I hate that way. I got to get it out of me and away from me. It's like I look at it in a totally different lens. And it tends to calm down a little bit. It's like a little kid pulling on your apron. Mommy, mommy, look at me, look at me, look at me. And when you're constantly trying to blame yourself or punish yourself for those things, they're going to just tug harder. And then you look and you say, oh, thanks. You did the best you could mm-hmm. with the knowledge and resources you had. And I don't really need that right now. But I see and acknowledge that that kind of stuff starts to soften on its own. Mm. It's, it's not as effortful as it needs to be. Totally. Oh, I love this. When we talk about the vagus nerve and the polyvagal, can we define that for yes, people? Yes. It's definitely addressed in this course, but just because we have a couple weeks before this course is yeah. launched, I would love if we could really get into that. Yes. Um, go for it. Yeah. So as beings in a body, our job is to navigate our environment and keep ourselves safe. And we're designed for that. And um, the mind is designed to signal the body to take action on its perceptions to keep us safe. And the body is designed to read the environment and tell the brain if we need to make any changes. So it's bi-directional. And the vagus nerve is the bi-directional highway whose job it is from really the first trimester in utero to start to decipher what is my body experiencing 
and can I send that information up to the brain? And then what is my brain experiencing and can I regulate my body off of that? Okay, so 80% of the information that we experience through the vagus nerve is coming in at the body level. That means smell, touch, sound, taste, muscle contraction, and big one, your, your, your big thing, gut health, mm-hmm. right? Huge in vagal toning. So all this information is coming in through the body, and then it's telling the brain a message. Um, so about 20% of the information um, of the vagus highway is going from brain to body, but it is bidirectional. And the vagus nerve has uh, really two purposes. The primitive aspect of the vagus nerve, which is um, designed to regulate heart and lungs and viscera. So if I'm in danger, uh uh-oh, what can I do? So in a very reptilian primitive way, it's going to drop your heart rate. It's going to dysregulate your breathing with the intention to make you go very, very quiet and invisible so that you are not detected by predators, ultimately, right? It's a reptilian response. Um, And then the social vagus nerve, which is a more evolved segment of the nerve, is designed to seek to know you're safe within a social context. So are you making eye contact with me? Am I making eye contact with you? Are you smiling? Are you looking in a disapproving manner? What's your tone of voice? Mm. So we've got two aspects of the vagus nerve constantly regulating us. If either of these is dysregulated, we will have a very subtle to profound sense that we are not safe, a very subtle to profound grasping for a defense mechanism, and a very subtle to a profound total body dysregulation. Everything from at the brain level, foggy brain, stress patterns inflaming, um, craving sugar and adrenaline cycles, to vasovagal seizures, to shutting off the reticular activating system, going completely unconscious, and your heart rate drops to nothing. To the body level, your gut is dysregulated, your immune system is totally off, you're overproducing free radicals, your heart rate variability is terrible, so you can't modulate, and everything is a, is a trigger. Hmm. That's the vagus nerve, <laughs> right? <I'm laughs> just <life>. that. It's <laughs> just that. It's so powerful, and I don't. I don't feel. I mean, I've been trying to get someone to talk about this for so long. It's why is it not more talked about? You know, I have no idea because <laughs> it saved my life, and I'm thinking, why don't people talk about the vagus response? Yeah. Um, I think you know, after Stephen Porges, he, that's like 40 years of clinical study in his theory. And notice it says theory, right? So it's taken a long time, I think, for the world to recognize this bi-directional highway and to not dismiss the power of mother-child bonding, eye contact, human touch. Mm-hmm. These are all things that have been, I think, stereotypically in the Western world dismissed as nice to have but not relevant. So true. But they are. And so it's just taken a really long time. but. It changed my life. It saved me. It stopped my seizures. Um, I've seen it change my students' lives just to know, not just about the vagus nerve, but then about the midbrain functioning and the cortex functioning, how all of this plays into what we feel at the end of the day Mm. and what we think we are. Yeah. And 
and how we show up in and the world. how we show yeah. up. It's a manual. You know, it occurred to me once I was at a cadaver exhibit and my daughter was probably three and a half at the time. We're looking at all these amazing cadavers and she points and says, what's that? And I had to read what organ it was. It was the stomach. And I didn't know that it was the stomach because it was way higher than I put my hands when I have a stomach ache. And I went, I can't believe I've had a stomach my whole life and had no idea where it is. Oh my gosh. And then I thought, I don't know where my spleen is. Like I could vaguely maybe point to the area. I don't know where my liver is. This is ridiculous. And (laughs) it seemed ridiculous when I had to tell my daughter, oh my God, that's But you're not alone. I mean, it's, this is why I just had, you know, kind of marketing brainstorm with the body awareness project. Like this is, I got so fired up and I literally said this, I said, we can shoot 4k video on our cell phones in our hand, yet nobody can point to their stomach. That is why we're doing the body awareness project. And it just, it was like, because I didn't know. And it took me after leaving college. It took me, and even with people, and I see it too with girls that I train, you know, hey, what's this muscle? What's this? This is my leg. This is my thigh. No, this is your quadricep. We're going to learn muscle groups. And then you're going to learn how to use them because all of a sudden they cared. They didn't care before. They thought it was just hard and it burned and they didn't understand why I was having them do it. It was like, as soon as you understand the reasons behind it and you have this respect for your system, everything can really come together in a way that's not stressful, which is what we want to avoid altogether. Knowledge is power. Mm. Simply naming this for people. I watch them shift in class. We haven't even gotten to a meditation yet, but just naming and them realizing, oh, I'm not broken. I'm following this process and it's neurobiological oh, this makes sense. And there, everything changes. Yes. Um, I feel like, I don't know why we don't get human being manuals, but we should. We really should. I mean, we in school, we don't learn about our bodies or our minds at all. At all. Isn't it crazy? Yeah. It has to change. And I don't know if it ever will, at least in our life. And I, well, we're doing it. We're, we're starting whatever we can. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And But that age group, I mean... Oh God! Yeah, that's it's. Just, my mom's an eighth grade teacher, and I'm like, there's got to be another way. I ju- it's funny because I just did a a Facebook live this morning. I I felt called to. I have a kids book called The Monster Under Your Bed, it's just a story in your head, and it teaches limbic response. Oh my God! And how children can Monsters override the, it. Say it again. The monster under your bed is just a story in your head, and it's got characters like Mr. Hippocampus, who's the librarian, and Miss Amygdala, like all these cute characters. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. But I wrote it because I had nothing to give my daughter, and I all of a sudden I'm looking at this little tiny thing, and I'm saying, wow, how am I going to teach her how to regulate? How did my parents teach me how to regulate? Well, they did the best they could, but they had no information, and going back to food and gut, I grew up, I lived on pasta and bread. I mean, some cheese for me. And I'm oh my God, <laughs> I lived on it and had, and I was a volatile teenager. I was, okay, I'm having seizures, I'm volatile, I'm hypoglycemic, I have no idea what any of this is. And for breakfast, I would have toast and orange juice, like sometimes three glasses of orange juice. <laughs> and for lunch, I'd have a bagel and I'd put potato chips on the bagel. 
with a crunch. <laughs> and then for dinner, I'd have pasta with Italian bread. And I'm like, with my boyfriend, I'm punching holes in his bedroom wall when we get into fights at 18 years old. And I'm, I'm this crazy person. Yep. <laughs> I relate to this very strongly. Having no idea about how to, how to run this body mm. at all. Mm. What was your first, like, outside of the shift, the story that you said, was there a moment before the seizure that you were already intuitively starting to get curious about your body or did it take that kind of big shift? I would say it took that because I grew up very dissociated. I was, um, uh, I was doing self-hypnosis at an early age from age 12. I was studying with monks in my late teens and all the practices that I was learning were telling me I'm not my body. Mm. I'm not that body. I'm more than. Get out of the body. Let yourself float away. So a, a naturally dissociative person in a freeze response dynamic doesn't need any help dissociating further. And everything I was pursuing was dissociating me further. So the only time I actually felt my body was when I danced. That was mm. it. But it wasn't balanced. I didn't really care what I put in my body. Um, didn't care as much either until I, uh, the seizures got really bad. Mm. And then I started asking questions, really believing the mantra that I'm not my body. So how can my body possibly be affecting me? Oh my goodness. I, I, sometimes I think how slow I actually learned. But then, I mean, that makes you the best teacher and it's incredible that I just love what you're doing. And the note about orange juice is so funny because I just was in the airport and I wrote this little note and I said, I didn't realize how many people still drink orange juice all the time. It's like, this is still part of a healthy breakfast. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah. I'm so in my bubble. Cereal and a glass of orange juice. juice. It's pretty more common than I realized yeah. still. <laughs> substitute, move that aside, substitute mm. a can of Coke. Yeah. <laughs> or a Starbucks latte. Yeah. Depending if it has flavor. Exactly. Oh man, there's so much to unpack here. Cause I just, I want to dig into a little bit of trauma. That was one of the things you started disassociating and really, I mean, this is the work that if someone has had trauma in their life, this is the work that they need this to is do. The work. And when you, when you're looking at your five-step process, disassociating and meditation, I think sometimes I get that confused as well. Like mm -hmm. I can be more than my body. I'm sitting in my body. I see, you know, I'm connecting all my chakras. I feel, you know, this activate around me, but that's still different. That's not leaving my body. Yeah. And, you know, with neurosculpting, every aspect of the process is to boost plasticity around the story we're telling. And a huge piece of the story is to ask what your body's doing. Not even what your energetic body's doing. What is your body doing? Where is there a tingle? Where is there a contraction? Where does your mind go right now when you have this thought? So we're always bringing it back to, this, to the soma. And then at key moments, we're asking people to take their non-dominant hand and either make a hand gesture or put it on their body for a felt sense to bring in the somatic uh, experience. And then if the person is comfortable, sometimes we even cue them to allow a neurogenic tremor to happen um, or to shake in a meditation. Um, so everything we do tries to get back to a very grounded relationship to the body, which is what 
part of what makes it different than other meditations. I mean, when I did TM, it was like, oh, if there's pain in your body, just push through and ignore it. Then it'll go away and just go further away. Mm. Um, but we're like, no, go to it. Describe it. Look at it. Observe it. And now what can we do with our breath? What can we do with our muscles? What can we do with our creative visualization mm. to talk to the body? Is this where vibrational like sound Tibetan bowls can be helpful too if you need you want some movement or tremor and or is this you maybe like if you feel something in your throat chakra right on your throat like humming or singing is that yeah. similar to that I would say that a sound is quite powerful the vibrations of sound are physical and they will move you um in fact when sound is too loud or too low like a bass sound it's used as a weapon right weapons of mass destruction can be pure bass sounds. There are sound weapons. I didn't know that. Yes. You could kill somebody with a bass tone low enough. So I just read that about a whale. Yeah, you could stop their heart with a bass tone. So sound is not to be taken lightly. It's it's a physical form. Um, But you bring up something very interesting, the humming and the singing. That is you making your own sound in a very um, palpable way. And it's also toning the vagus nerve because the vagus nerve is going to get toned through vibration in the neck. And so if you're humming and singing, you're actually innervating the vagus nerve in a safe and benign way. So it starts to activate around some safe inputs. Um, So it's a fantastic way to move things and even in a meditation to be doing that. What a good take home that yeah. I mean that's because we can all do that we all should do that everyone can do that <laughs> yeah. everyone can shake for 20 seconds vigorously mm. um sing and quite honestly from what I've read gargling is even better vagal toning because yeah. it the, the liquid has volume you're mm. adding volume to that sound. makes sense and you can hear it goes probably through ear canal yeah. in a different way I uh Dr. Karazian is who I first learned that through but I I remember also telling, he said like tongue depressor, kind of gagging, mm-hmm. but I've had such a horrible reaction to it. And that one wouldn't work for me. <laughs> I, I didn't think. do well. I didn't yeah. do well. Um, with the, when we're looking at brain and this is just a topic that I feel like all of the things you're saying are just triggering so much from my last couple of weeks. One of the things that I thought I would love to know your reaction. And if you don't have any comments on it, that's totally okay. But if you feel, I feel like we are all really addicted to dopamine. Like we're kind of, we, if we do not move, we feel like we're dying. And that was because that's, I mean, I know that experience so well because I never knew a world without movement. And then I drove myself into adrenal dysfunction and, you know, injury and just kept coming back to it. And I would find my brain would escape in different ways because I couldn't physically move because I was injured. It was like onto the next, onto the next, onto the next. And you see this all the time with certain fitness classes and certain uh, patterns that, you know, when we're really trying to retrain, what do you, you know, is it just our society? Is it just because we're constantly on our phones? Is it because we're glamorizing the hustle culture? Why are we so addicted to this movement and this negative way when it is supposed Um, to be so positive. I think it's a combo of all of those things. And then of course they perpetuate each other. I would say absolutely 100%. This is not a secret. Social media is designed to hack into the dopamine system. That's why notifications have a little tone. That's why they pop up on your screen. 
That's why things on your screen change within seconds. I mean, there's no accident around the design of marketing. And marketing, it's interesting, marketing has had their finger on the pulse of neuroscience long before anyone else. They know how to hack your system and they know how to get you feeling a need. And, um, and that's what we are in now. We feel that this stuff is necessary for life. It's, it's a need at this point. Um, and I think we see this less in cultures that have less of this available. Certainly, you would regulate. If you were to live in the woods for any length of time, you would start to regulate. Number one, you'd regulate your circadian rhythms. And, your, um, and that would be something really profound to experience because we don't do that now. Um, and that's just cycles of patterns, w- waking up with the sun, going, yeah. feeling tired at night yes. for the first time. Letting, letting the natural cycles uh, recalibrate in the hypothalamus. Um, that would start to regulate. We would start to slow down because we would have to be paying attention differently. Don't pay attention to what's right in front of your eyes. You have to pay attention to what you're hearing, mm-hmm. what you're smelling. You have to start listening to the wind patterns. You have to get quiet and slow to take in the relevant information. And in the world we have today, you don't have to get quiet or slow to take in anything. In fact, if you're quiet and slow, you're going to miss something. So it's all of it. It's, it's all of it. And so I, I'm not a person who thinks we need to stop doing everything we're doing. But I'm always curious, how do we need to evolve to put this in balance? And so with my daughter, and I look at her, she's grown up with screens. She said at three years old, when we were in the car driving home from daycare, she said, Mommy, scroll down the window. <laughs> and I said, scroll down the window? It hit me. When I was a kid, scroll meant a piece of parchment paper from ancient Egypt. <laughs> it did not. It wasn't a verb. <laughs> scroll was not a verb in the 70s. Wow, yeah. And she, and I said, oh, my God, she's entrained mm. from the get-go um someone's friend was playing with their phone when they were a baby and it wasn't a touch screen right they were used to playing with the touch screen and they touched the flip phone and they're trying to move it and they're saying mommy phone's broken phone's oh broken yeah. so we're entrained yeah so how do we evolve so how do we evolve and what i'm seeing and this is my personal theory what i'm seeing is well, the actuality is a raise in anxiety levels across the board, ADD, ADHD, and anxiety. But what I'm interpreting that as is an entire generation of dysregulated vagus nerves who are now devoid of the input that we are designed to look for. Tone of voice, human touch, smell, sight, um, all of these things. Mm. And those are I mean, those are removed on text, right? And emojis may actually be the thing that saves our children because they give, deliver some emotional context. No, other than isn't it crazy how much weight each emoji has? It's like and a and here's, little smirk is different, right? And this <laughs> is why what you're seeing is the the machine create the problem, and now we have to create some kind of balance. The emojis were developed. Because we're misinterpreting the text. Mm. So the emojis are coming in with a context. 
which is because the vagus nerve is flipping out because you sent me a text accidentally in all caps. <laughs> and it's so easy to interpret visual and something that we, you can't, you yeah. know. Oh, There's wow. a key and peel episode where they're texting each other and it's hysterical because one is all chill and he's going, hey, do you want to hang out tonight? I don't really care what we do. And the other scene, the guy reads the text and he says, hey, do you want to hang out? I don't care what we do. And one's getting mad at the interpretation and the other one's sending it with lots of love and all of it's lost in translation. Mm-hmm. And so emojis are, are really trying to regulate the vagus nerve. Mm. I don't think they're doing the best job. But, <laughs> but this is my theory is that we're going to start seeing more and more. This is also why ASMR is so addictive for, for people. Mm. It's giving that intimate um, prosody that we are missing. Mm. It's giving the whisper in the ear, oh, my God, I'm connected to somebody, and I'm having to listen. I'm hearing people's lips smack together. Yeah. I mean, it's so it's intimate that it kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies, to I be know. honest. But kids love it, and it actually does relax them. There is a really good advice if you're not used to this. It's kind of, you know, not for kids, but it is about ASMR. Um, you can find it on, I can't remember, some HBO. Sh- so if you watch Game of Thrones, you can find it in the same area. But the it was like, I had no idea this world existed until recently because I saw a commercial. I think it was Pepsi or something where she pops it open. I'm like, oh my gosh, these are, this is a new thing. This yeah. is- it's a new thing because the vagus nerve is starving for its inputs. Oh. to regulate. And so kids are gravitating to this feels safe. This feels nurturing. This feels comforting. And I wonder what is coming for us to feel. It's almost like I'm watching a virtual world be developed and then another virtual world come in to balance the virtual world that was developed. And eventually we're so far down into layers of this virtual world world, and I'm like wait do I live in the matrix or why I don't know what's happening doesn't it feel that way so with you personally and with you you know being a mom how are some ways that you help approach that because I know so many of my mom listeners are like yes well I've certainly educated my daughter to know that whether she admits it or not she's in that cycle Mm. she knows about the brain uh I get she takes a walk every day now, even though she's listening to music, she's still out. She's still walking. So she's outside every single day. And how old day. is she now? She's 15. Um, I've taken her to a bunch of nature camps. Uh, and I don't know how that's going to translate <laughs> as she gets older, but I feel like that's kind of what I've been able to do. Yeah. I love Because it's, you know, it's, it is a part of our life. The usage sometimes we just don't have control of outside of screen time and young, younger ages and really omitting it. But even for me, it's like if I do not set boundaries, very clear boundaries, and I hold myself to them, just like going to the gym or drinking enough water, it will suck you into it does. a hole. It sucks me in and then I justify it. Well, I need it for business. Mm-hmm. I need it for this. And <laughs> yeah. do I? I know. And I, I do, and I, and the more that I see it, the more I'm like, held by it. It's like, oh, I need to not have this be my reason for business anymore because I can't, it, it has to change. And it, the only way it's going to change is if I acknowledge that I could use other tools or help mm-hmm. grow other tools. And that's a scary world. Or hire other people to do it and go out and 
walk in nature Stay in the while they're house. doing it. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I love that. Um, this has been so amazing. I think, you know, you, so the neurosculptinginstitute.com, you have a retreat coming up. It's a full week immersion and you do it in New Mexico. It's outside of Santa Fe, September 21st to the 27th. It is amazing. so deep. We do neurogenic tremoring, neurosculpting, meditation, um, neuroanatomy, art, yoga, and wow. it's amazing. Ugh, I love it. And then for somebody that's like, how do I get more of you right away? What, you know, is it just through the website? Through? Yeah. Um, go to the website and look at our events calendar. I teach a three-week series every month. The topic changes. It's open to all levels. We have plenty of facilitators teaching other interesting classes here. We have online classes. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, I was going to yeah. ask about. But our student, I would say 40% of our students are in person. 60% either don't live in the state or don't live in the country. And that's so great. So it's pretty diverse. That's so great. And then some take-homes, you know, outside of the shaking and the, you know, understanding the vagal tone and really understanding how stress really impacts so many of the things that we might be dealing with. Is it just go hug somebody? Uh, <laughs> um, it could be, but that's also pretty vulnerable, vulnerable for yeah. people. So what I would say is look at your sleep patterns and try to employ some good sleep hygiene and 1000% look at what you're eating. 1000% look at what you're eating. And I know you're going to talk all about gut health. So yeah. Yeah. So connected. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I, w- I want to have many more conversations with you, Lisa. This is amazing. And I think the last, I ask all my podcast guests this, and I almost forgot because I haven't had a podcast in so long, um, what your spirit animal is. Um, you know what? I feel like it's a dolphin, but years ago I was told it was a shark. Oh, that's a fun combo. So I don't know. Oh, maybe a little combo both. Maybe. I feel like everyone has two like pretty deep ones and then the rest are signals so I think a good, that's a good combo all right I'll take it yeah. a shark when I need to be and a dolphin when I need to <laughs> that's be that's a perfect balance <laughs> but the dolphin has the larger prefrontal cortex so I want to be that more <laughs> <laughs> this has been so good thank you so so much Lisa. thank you